Hi, and welcome to the PhD Talk podcast. I am Eva, a civil engineering professor and blogger on the side. And I'm Rico, a PhD student in civil engineering. Join us on this podcast in which we discuss all topics related to PhD life, research mechanics, and lived experiences. There will be interviews and discussions with guest researchers and PhD students. We hope you stick around with us on the PhD Talk podcast. Hi, and welcome to episode 38 of the PhD Talk podcast. Today, we are going to talk more about reading the literature, but this time our topic is how to come from actually having read a large number of articles and then writing your literature review. So without much further introduction, I wanted to ask you, Rico, does your PhD project require some part that is a literature review report? Yeah, so as a matter of fact, my PhD program that I'm in does not require uh, like a state-of-the-art review or a literature review. The only, I guess, part that requires something like that is the is that chapter in the thesis. So my literature review was was a pretty informal process, you know. I uh, I read a lot of papers, I summarized them, but I didn't have to follow any specific guidelines or, or any requirements in order to write a state-of-the-art review, as they're sometimes called. And uh, so I'm curious about uh, your experience, Ava, and if you've encountered any situations where that's really a, a requirement for the PhD program. Yeah, um, so in my PhD program, and for most of us that did the PhD at the same time in Delft, we write technical reports that we call Staven reports, which is after our laboratory that's, the, that's called after Simon Staven, the, the Dutch um, uh, scientist from, I think, Renaissance period, and probably giving the wrong time period here, but uh, uh, a famous <laughs> Dutch scientist long, long ago, after which our lab is, is named, and we are the Staven II laboratory, so the, the technical reports that we write are Staven reports. And typically, we start our PhDs by writing a Staven report that is a review of the literature. Um, nowadays, in the newer way of doing the, the PhD program in Delft. There is a more formal go-no-go no go meeting after the first year to decide whether the candidate can continue on or not. And that also requires writing a go-no-go no go report, which is largely a review of the literature, identifying the gap in the literature, and then saying, this is how I plan to, to tackle the research in the next year. So more literature heavy than a typical proposal than people have at US universities, because it's really 75% literature review. Okay. Often the students still, or the candidates still write the literature review report first, and then they summarize from there into their go-no-go no go report. These reports are, I guess the length varies, but a typical literature review would be what, um, of approximately how many pages would you say? It really depends. Yeah. It, I would say it ranges between 30 and 100 pages, depending on how many figures there are, depending on the layout as well. And whether you, for example, include all code formulas uh, or whether you just refer or whether you summarize them into a table that also changes the, the page count. Yeah, I, I really like that because my literature review process was very open-ended with no deliverable. Mm -hmm. So when that happens, I find like it can take longer than it needs to. And you can also, you don't have a clear focus. So mm -hmm. um, I, I like that you're, you're required to, to produce these uh, seven reports, I guess. Mm -hmm. And many times our projects are also such that we have at least yearly deliverables to the funding organization. And 
So for the first year, we typically have that literature review report as well as a plan of action as the first deliverable. On this topic, we've had a couple episodes related to the topic of literature reviews and, and getting from reading to a literature review. We'll link those in the show notes. We had one episode on reading literature and another on how to search for articles. And this episode will really be about organizing a literature review, you know, what to put in, what to leave out, and how to include that literature review section in a paper or in your dissertation. So I guess the first step, once you've found which articles you want to read, you have to, of course, organize them. And I'd, I'm curious to see how do you tend to organize your papers? Do you have a, a management system that you use? Uh, yes. So the software that I use is EndNote, and there's many different reference management systems out there. Uh, the ones that come to my mind are Zotero, Mendeley, Papers, and uh, as well as some plugins for LaTeX, etc. So there's many choices that you can take. I use EndNote because my university has a license for that, and a, a more senior PhD student recommended it to me time ago. So the I would say the time investments that it would take me now to transfer over 4,000 references to a new system is not something that I, I I'm up for. So I just stick with the the software that I have. I have not compared to other softwares. I'm, I'm happy with what it does and uh, uh, keep adding to it. So yeah. that's why I use EndNote. Yeah, I'll, I'll say also just for really early stage researchers or PhD students who maybe don't understand why a reference management system is helpful um, because you're going to read a lot of papers and you're going to have to keep them somewhere and, and catalog them somehow and sticking them into uh, folders just you know nesting folders for different topics or whatever that's not always the best way so endnote allows you to have them all in one place it generates um, references for you for a bibliography and it also allows you to put tags and that sort of thing so that you can easily find the papers that are relevant to you know, a specific topic so mm -hmm. it's really a useful tool to, to get in the habit of using early on and as eva said i, I use endnote as well but uh, mendeley or zotero i'm sure work very well yeah, and I, I did not start using EndNote right at the beginning of my page. I, what I had done was start just typing the references into a Word document, which then did not become very searchable. Sure. And at the time that my colleague was finishing, she said that many people were still using Excel files and Excel databases and, and sorting uh, things in there. And she said, well, that can get very confusing as well if you just start sorting things in columns in Excel. So she said, I recommend that you use the actual software for it. And that's when I said, ah, maybe this is a moment to start putting all these references in there. And by now, the use of these reference management software systems has become even easier in a way than you can easily download the, for example, the .ris file in EndNote and it immediately imports the reference into your EndNote uh, without you having to type in all the fields manually, which it used to be long ago. And you can even select whether you want to put the abstract in there or not, have a lot of options. Yeah, so that's from when you're searching for the article, you can download this RIS or it's, a, it's an information file and it, it auto-populates all the fields in, uh, in EndNote for the author and the abstract, as you said. Yeah. yeah, very, very helpful as opposed to what I'm still using for some of my papers, which is just download them, stick them in a folder somewhere and, and hope that you can find them when you're mm -hmm. looking for it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and what about, I'm curious to see your workflow, like when you read a paper, do you summarize it right away? Or I guess not, not so much now, but perhaps when you were 
writing a literature review? Did you write a summary or did you take point form notes or how did you record what you learned from the paper? My workflow at the moment is as follows. So I read the paper and I mark up, I, I read them now on my iPad. So I use the, the pencil to underline what is important or highlight parts as well as write notes in the margin. And then what I actually do is in a Word document, I take screenshots of that, have the information in there and with the reference. And I do that for all the references. And then I start a new file in which I take that information, put it into sentences of my own, start to identify the topics that belong together and as such write the actual literature review. Okay. And I guess just to ask a follow-up question, I guess that's not for every paper that you read. That's only if you read a paper and you say, okay, this is really relevant because some papers yeah. are just tangentially important, right? Yes. So essentially, when I read papers in a new topic, for example, if I am going to start working on structural applications of a new type of concrete, then I read everything that I can find about that, experiments that have been done, and then I write a statement report on that topic or just a small summary file for myself to have that information there. Um, yeah, for myself, I used, uh, I, think, I think I've discussed this before, and it's something I just started using really last year, but I, I also take notes in the margins and that sort of thing, and I highlight uh, and make a note of references in the paper, like in the, in the references section of the paper that I want to read. Uh, and then I, when I'm finished reading the paper, I get a post-it note and I put that on the top of the paper because I still print out uh, most things that I read. And then on that post-it note, I put in point form the, the key points of that paper. And so the, the point is not so much to write a full summary on that post-it note, it's just to be able to reference this paper later. You know, like uh, mm -hmm. I can look at that post note at a glance, see what it's what it's talking about, and uh, and then decide if that's what I'm looking for. You know, for my literature review. Yeah. So that's my method. Uh, I didn't uh, get that method from anywhere. I didn't see it anywhere. It just sort of happened as I was sitting on my desk reading a paper, and I saw I had a post note, and so it works well for me. But of course, it's not very digital, so it's not searchable in the way that that your method. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was saying my method is also something that grew over time and that I didn't get from any advice book. It just it started when I was doing my experimental work where we were looking at the influence of different parameters and I had just started different word files for each of the parameters. And whenever I read something related to, for example, somebody tested uh, influence of one parameter and I thought it was interesting, I would drop it in the file about that parameter. And then I used that later on to discuss my test results as well. So that's when I, when I developed that to sort of uh, separate out out the, the different parameters that we were looking at. And then in addition, I, there are excellent references from other professor bloggers on the internet, and I'll link to in the show notes as well, that are really related to the writing of summaries, uh, which is not a method that I use and that Rico doesn't use, but that may be the, the method that resonates more with you. So I'll make sure to add those uh, particular blog posts in the show notes and you can explore them for yourself as well. Now that we've spoken a little bit about organizing papers and writing those quick summaries, um, let's get into more of the literature review fundamentals, I guess. And so important to realize what literature reviews are. And to do that, you need to understand what they're not. Mm -hmm. I'm getting to one of my pet peeves here, but 
literature reviews are not annotated bibliographies. And that's something that I, as a reviewer and editor, I see in, in many literature reviews that people write, that they write it as an annotated bibliography. Essentially, what does it mean, an annotated bibliography? It's saying author A said blah, 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 and found blah, blah, blah. Author B said this and did that without any coherence between that. It's essentially, as the name says itself, it's an annotated bibliography. It's just going through the references with a maybe one sentence or paragraph on each of the topics without any way of bringing the information together. And as I said, it's one of my pet peeves. It's something that a lot of people do. You see that a lot in a lot of theses that I, I refer to, that that's their method of writing the literature review part of the dissertation. Mm -hmm. But it does not review the literature. <laughs> nice. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess you're looking for, and with your students are... are uh, in the work that you read, you're looking more for tying it all together. Like yes. these four mm -hmm. researchers looked at something similar and this is how their work affects yes. whatever mm -hmm. the topic at hand. Okay. For example, if it's related to testing certain concrete elements and varying one parameter, then you can look at the experiments that have been done in the past and say, well, these are the ranges of, say, concrete strengths that have been tested over the past from maybe very low strength in the beginning of the 20th century to non-fiber high strength very recently. This is the influence that they found. But perhaps there's this test series here where they tested a number of strengths and they didn't find that larger influence. So bringing that together and saying, well, the majority find this, but some find this. And then as well, potentially trying to say, well, the potential reasons for this. And of course, you don't want to start hypothesizing in your review. But if the authors already gave potential reasons for that, you can as well bring that in there because that can explain why there are differences in observations yeah i think that's that's really good advice like put things into context and you have to do a bit more work than just writing the annotated bibliographies i think you have to put on your critical thinking cap and for most people in their phd that's the first time that they're thinking critically about what they're what they're seeing you're, you're trying to train to be a researcher so that this yeah. is the first step towards that and in addition to that in our field many times our project phd projects are such that we already know our topic but in other fields it may be that you have a much broader idea of what to work on and you really need to look for the gap in the literature and then being able to find that by thinking critically on what has been written is an essential skill in being able to come to your research question and defining really the value that you can bring and another thing that a literature review is not is copy pasting entire sentences or paragraphs from other people's work. First of all, that's plagiarism. So you yeah. shouldn't be doing that. And and secondly, it's not reviewing the literature. So I just put it out there. It's unfortunately something that uh, sometimes we see in mostly at the, the master thesis level where people write a literature review for the first time that they just uh, copy paste sentences from a few references and, and slab a few references on it and call it a day. That's not going to fulfill the requirements. Yeah, it's like it's even a step below annotated annotated bibliographies yes. on, on the scale uh -huh. of critical thinking. So that's not to say that you can't list equations in your literature review as well, or, or figures or that sort of thing. You know, that's obviously different. Well, for figures, it really depends on whether they are under copyright or not. Equations you can you you can include, but figures it depends whether they are copyrighted or not, and whether you are going to put it as say a report, internal report of your university, or if it's going to be a work that then has copyright on it such as a, a paper uh, and then talking a little bit about the overarching 
organization of a, a literature review. I guess there's a couple ways to go about that. Um, the way that I see sometimes, and I think we've spoken about this in the past, is writing your literature review chronologically as the as the field has developed. So, you know, okay. you start in probably you know, maybe the 1800s, depending on what the topic is, or, or the 60s or the 70s, and work your way down and see how the topic has developed. I think that can be useful. And I know Eva had has a, a few thoughts on that. I think you've mentioned it in the past. Mm-hmm. When I did my literature review for my PhD, I, I didn't write my literature review in the end chronologically, but I did look at the papers in a chronological way at some point to see really how our understanding of, in my case, shear in concrete developed over time. And when there were certain tangents that then bled to dead uh, in the research field and, and how even the naming of the problem changed over time, because sometimes the problem has a different name in the past. And then if you look in your academic search engine for papers on the topic, the way we call it today, you may not be finding the papers from the beginning, the beginning days of the field. The, the vocabulary changes as, as time progresses. Mm-hmm. So that's looking at things chronologically. I guess the other way that we you see a lot in, in dissertations is arranged by, by topic, or as you were saying, parameters, mm-hmm. different parameters of the research program so in that way i think that's the way i'm leaning towards uh writing my literature review for the dissertation right now is having it by topic so not so much going from 1800s to to the modern day but more talking about each specific let's say a parameter in the research program individually or uh, different aspects of the research program uh, on their own as their own separate topic going through the list of things that are important there and maybe within those subheadings dealing with things chronologically but really trying to organize it again thinking critically about the topic what aspects are important and separating things out in that way. And I think this ties in very well with the last way of organizing a literature review, which is really around methodologies. And the way you you were just describing, Rico, with the, the different topic, typically what we have in there is as well, for example, the mechanical models that have been developed over the year and then perhaps simplified equations that are used in design and the differences between those. And when it comes down to different methodologies, that could be, for example, looking at analytical studies that have been done, experimental studies that have been done, and numerical studies that have been done, and the limitations and assumptions behind each of those, which is very similar to organizing things more by topic. So when it comes down to writing that literature review, whether it is for your thesis or as a section in an article, it's important that you can link what you've read with what the gaps in the literature are, because that is going to then, especially for your thesis, but also for your paper, it's going to tie to the research question. And that research question, of course, has to address something that is novel and then does mean that it has to address something that lies in the gap of what you found in the literature. Um, doesn't mean that it has to cover the entire gap. It can be part of it as if it's a large gap, but there has to be a link between the gap in the literature and um, your research question and then ultimately the research that you did and that you're writing about. The second part is that it's important to get a good grasp on the state of the art or the state of the practice. And that means to make sure you have covered the, and, and we talked about this topic already in our episode on reading the literature, but it just means making sure you have covered 
the depth and breadth of the topic so that you understand the full width and the full depth of the topic. And then, of course, the last one here is essentially what it means to do a literature review and to review the literature. It means that you should be digesting the material into a coherent story. However you choose to organize that story, it has to be a coherent story that is not an annotated bibliography. Yeah, as you start to read, even if you don't have a coherent story coming coming into it, which really you shouldn't, but as you start to read more and more, you'll start to build connections between the different papers that you're reading. And you'll notice that in the papers themselves, they'll, they'll reference something that you just read. You know, they'll say, well, so-and-so last year wrote this article and we're addressing an issue that that brought up, for example. So you can get uh, guidance on how to organize everything just based on what you're reading and how they refer back to what's already been done, if that makes sense. Certainly, yeah. We, we did an interview with Jonathan Guillermo about a systematic literature review. And so in order to get a good grasp on the state of the art or the state of the practice, you need to, in some fields more than others, you need to really have a consistent way of pulling out these research articles and making sure that you get everything that's available. So that's, that's an important first step. We touched on organizing the papers that you've accumulated. We've touched on uh, what exactly the goal of a literature review is and how to organize the, that material. And then we've touched on what's important for a literature review. So if you're following through on this uh, in the order that you would do it, you're now at the step where you're actually going to sit down and write your literature review. And um, I'm curious to see you know somebody who's written a fair bit and an editor as well for, for journals. Uh, how do you, what, what are your tips for somebody who's sitting down to write their literature review? Yeah, the first one is to include it. If you're going to write a, an, a journal article, make sure that the literature review is in there. And that most of the times then that means a section, typically section number two, titled literature review, but it doesn't always have to be like that. It can be part of your introduction if you do not skip introducing the topic in your introduction, which is an, another flaw that some authors make that they write the introduction of their literature review without introducing the topic and why it's important. So including yeah. it in any form before you get to methods and materials, etc., is important. So let me ask you, like in your uh, concept of, of a paper, it would be, of course, your abstract, which is a totally different thing, but then your introduction would introduce this, the topic that you're trying to cover and why it's important. And then the next step would be, well, here's what's already been done in that. I hadn't really keyed into that, but uh, now that I'm thinking about it, sometimes you're reading a paper and it's like they're, they sort of jump into the literature review and they assume that that's going to explain why the topic's important. But uh, it doesn't take much room. Put a little paragraph at the beginning just saying, hey, here's the topic. This is why we care about it. Mm -hmm. you, can, you can visualize a paper as an hourglass and you start very broad with introducing the topic and what's important and you narrow down through the literature and then what you did and then your results and then you go to your discussion where you put it back in touch with the literature review and then the conclusions, which can be broader again, as long as they're based on your work. There you go. The hourglass, I like that. Mm -hmm. But I, I think the, other, the one other thing that I wanted to mention there is it doesn't necessarily have to be called section two literature review. Depending on what you're writing, it can be a discussion of the existing in our field code methods. It can be a discussion of previous work. Yeah, it could be, for example, a review on previous experiments. As long as it hinges on the literature and then makes a step to the research gap, that's what, as a 
reviewer and editor I am looking for in a paper. And that very much ties in with my second tip, which is making sure your literature review section is relevant for the paper. Sometimes you read a literature review where the authors are trying to include everything that came up when they searched for the topic in, uh, in whichever academic search engine that they're using. Yeah. And it is twisted and contorted in such a way that they're discussing things which have then nothing to do with the rest of the paper. And if we use that hourglass analogy, analogy, we well, we want to start from the overall relevance of the field and the research and then narrow it down to the literature, the work that has been done. And we don't want to, you know, go out of the hourglass and start to talk about yeah. whatever interesting. And sometimes the reason that the authors do this can be for like unethical reasons that they want to refer to their own papers that they did on other topics in the past. And they just want to have self citations in there. So that sometimes may be the reason for authors to include it. If I read it as a reviewer or editor and say, what well, that doesn't belong here, then it has to go. <laughs> yeah. So. If you start to get confused, like, where are you taking me on this story? Mm -hmm. The next uh, little point here that we have is something that I can touch upon a little bit. So making sure that you're not geographically biased to your own country. You know, that, that's important. And it sounds a little maybe a little silly, depending on what your topic is, but uh, especially for uh, structural engineering, where the codes really are organized by country, there's often very different philosophies that the codes will take. Um, and so in, in shear, I know like the American method for dealing with shear in their code and the ACI code versus the, the Canadian method. Uh, it's very easy to get stuck on one, one research track and say that that's the best way, but we're really trying to not, you know, assume that the research stream that's prevalent in your country is the right, the right one. So you really have to incorporate all of that into your into a good literature review. Did you have you encountered that, Ava, like a geographical bias or, or something similar yeah, to that? Yeah, all the time. Well, all the time is maybe an exaggeration, but I do see that people from larger countries are prone to navel gazing in their own country, and the difficulty there sometimes is as well the language bias for us to have a good grasp on the work that's been done in China and Japan is sometimes more difficult. Getting access to the work that's been done in Russia can be very difficult for us. Mm -hmm. um, the other part that I see is that, and I, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, but there's a lot of, in, in our field, there's a lot of work done in Germany, typically published in the German journals on concrete structures, for example. And I do see that that work is often forgotten in the Anglo-Saxon world because there is a, just a focus on, on English language documents. The work that I've uh, read, like it's, it's often like I'll be reading a paper and they've done the work on translating, like let's say a series of tests in Japan or in Germany. And I'll be reading something and I'll say like, well, that sounds like, how come I haven't seen this reference elsewhere? this mm -hmm. test in this test series in Japan or in Germany how come that's that hasn't come up anywhere else and it's just because this person that I'm reading did the legwork and so you have to work hard to try and avoid that I guess yeah and and what I sometimes do is because in Scopus or whichever academic search engine that you use trying not to use brand names here mm -hmm. uh, you, you do can get access depending on your institution of course to for example the Chinese journals and then what I've used in the past is looking at the pictures and using Google Translate and trying to get an idea of it and then if all else fails ask a, a Chinese colleague and say is this interesting relevant can we do something with it yeah, even just copy and pasting stuff into into Google Translate, like at least it gives you the gist, mm -hmm. you know, start with the abstract and see, yeah, you know, looking yeah. at the photos like you're like we're back in kindergarten reading picture books. You know. 
Mm -hmm. So I, I do think then, even if you don't speak the language with a bit of imagination effort and some help from your friends you you do get a long way <laughs> that's uh, that, we're really in kindergarten now yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. and potentially writing the original author if it's work that's been done recently writing them asking if they have like write them in english if that's your language of uh, choice and, and see if they can answer some questions said i i've been trying to make sense of your work published in for example portuguese and uh, i think you did this and this and i'm interested in this and this and start a conversation people are always happy to to help oh yeah absolutely little bit of a tangent on language bias yeah. geographical bias and i can imagine it's it's uh, dependent on on the industry as well or in on the on the field of academia mm -hmm. so back to the other tips touched on this a bit before but especially Ava was furious at people that do this <laughs> I'm exaggerating for effect here but yeah make sure that you don't write an annotated bibliography okay. that's not the goal it's not just to have you know you don't want subsections that are just the author's name and the paper and then a full summary of that that's really not what you're trying to do what we're trying to do is bring the material together in a coherent way and um Anyway, can you tell us a little bit about how to do that? Is there specific techniques that you can use? Yeah. First of all, we talked about how to organize the material in a coherent way before. But when it really comes down to writing this for the literature review section of a paper, some things that you can think of that are not just producing text are, for example, making a summary table. For example, whether you have looked at a certain theme that emerged from the literature and how different authors shed, shown their light on that theme, or when it's, or for example, in more uh, structural engineering uh, topic, if you, for example, looked at a number of series of experiments done by different authors, you can summarize, for example, the range of values that they tested and, and how large the influence of this parameter was and, and see potential differences between the methods that they use, so the testing methods, to really already show a summary and a reflection on the work in a table. And the other thing that you can do is to make a drawing and that drawing can be, say, you are working on something that I read recently was on the influence of COVID-19 for women in academia. And the what the author had done was looked at the literature and made like a mind map drawing sketch of what she read to bring everything together so that the drawing can be very visual as well. And another type of drawing illustration that you can think of is anything that's a Venn diagram where you can show how fields overlap and where your question fits in or what you've read fits in or how the overlap between different studies sits in there in that Venn diagram. Or you can look at anything that is a flow chart on a typical way that people have been working with a certain methodology in the past. So anything that is an illustration can help your literature review come more to life. And I'd go even a step further than that and say, at least for myself, um, starting with the idea of I want to create a, a summary figure, some sort of figure, whether that's a table or a, or a drawing, as you said, start with that in mind, like as, as sort of a sub goal for yourself. And then from there, that really helps in the same way that like a mind map will help get your thoughts in order, I feel like. Starting with a figure that you want to complete and then going from that into the actual writing, probably a good way to go, at least for, for myself. That's how I tend to think about things. Even in the papers that we've been writing this summer, this is the figure that I'm trying to get to. And then from that, the text comes out organically, basically. 
So, and you see that a lot. I see a lot of, you know, there's a lot of tables with code equations, for example, comparing different, uh, different prediction methods. Um, mm -hmm. So it's something that's really common. Yeah, so everything I've, I've mentioned now of tips and what we discussed is really with regard to the literature review section in your dissertation or the literature review section, however you want to call it, in a journal article. Mm -hmm. Of course, there is a type of journal articles that are reviews, which are either state of the art, state of the practice, or review papers. And that's a whole beast in itself, because that requires, of course, a step up from your average uh, literature review of one page in the, in the paper. So we are not going to delve into that now, but stay tuned for a future episode where we will address this topic. Okay, thank you all for listening. This has been episode 38 of the PC Talk podcast in which we discussed how to get from reading the literature to writing your literature review for your dissertation or a journal article. Thank you so much for listening and we will be back next week for more on PG Live and Research Mechanics.